Do you want the title? The first one I'm going to read. I'm writing this from my mother's apartment. It's called Orange. All I could think about was being written into her life story. She made up a story about What was the inspiration for the story? My story is called Cigarettes. What was the genesis? I used to be almost dependent on voice. I want to talk to you. (laughs) And the conversation starts. Hello, and welcome to Off the Page, a podcast of stories, essays, and poetry from the Stanford University writing community. In each episode, a Stanford author will read a piece of their writing and then talk to us about their craft and process. I'm Mark Lebowski, Jones Lecturer in the Creative Writing Program. Lena Blackmon is from Tucson, Arizona, by way of Trinidad and Tobago, and graduated in 2019 with a degree in material science and engineering. With writing featured in The Offing, Rookie, and True Culture University magazines, as well as The Visible Poetry Project, their work is also part of the anthology Rookie on Love, published by Penguin Random House in 2018. They are a 2018 Vona Fellow and have previously performed with the Stanford Spoken Word Collective. Bartman lived in poverty and died in Paris of an undetermined inflammatory disease in December 1815. After her death, Cuvier dissected her body and displayed her remains. For more than a century and a half, visitors to the Museum of Man in Paris could view her brain, skeleton, and genitalia, as well as a plaster cast of her body. Here's what is true. A black body radiator be a star that Raleigh Jean's law fails to approximate. Black bodies be emitting spectral radiance, but those white men act like they ain't ever seen us. I mean, who gave men permission to approximate the black body, to contain us? How have men deluded themselves that they are close enough to touch us? Why must they demand black bodies self-sacrifice in ultraviolet? That is, why must we give all of us to them until we have nothing left, until we approach infinity? Why must they make us approach infinity? Why must they contrast us against the omnipotent? Why must they deny us our humanity in death? Why must they torture us with the focus they have been beaming onto black bodies? Why are they so hungry? Like we shine, but it ain't enough. For them, black bodies is never enough, and our purgatory ain't either. How dare they? In fact, we, the black bodies, refuse and denounce lawful men and their sickly approximations because we, the black bodies, understand each other at visible frequencies without a dissection or death, which is to say, witness us, the black bodies, rejoice to become mortals again, because here is what is true. A black body radiator be in thermodynamic equilibrium, which is to say, a black body be at rest. Yes, let the black bodies rest in peace. Watch us, the black bodies, converge into an infrared sunset. So blessed be the tail of a distribution curve, like where my thigh meets my ass. My own black body, emblematic and fundamentally mine. This one is called Holy. Holy. Like when I baptize my braids in boiling water or take a warm bath holy like water in the Sonoran, or a monsoon, a message in a bottle from my great-grandma in Barbados, rain that kisses my cheeks and holds my face. Never knew rain could love me so much, like the ocean with a spirit hovering over it, like maybe we mortals never healed when we crossed the ocean, like Em's commute from Oakland every day to surf the Pacific, how she says, I feel more safe being a woman of color in the ocean than I do on land. No one wants to dry out on land. The loneliness of being separated 
from all the water you ever knew. Loneliness that might turn me to stones or a lighthouse, waiting for a return signal until, amazingly, the entire matriarchy slides into forgotten. Rain sounds, ocean waves, and distant thunders 4K Ultra HD. Mom kisses me on the forehead like a nickel-sized raindrop, says, I gave you life, I have the scars to prove it. Look, the whole Caribbean in a moment. Mom awakes with a crash when I count her eyelashes. Still, the waves be calm like Grandma Lois, smoking a cigarette on her porch with her potted ivies. Some days I imagine her in 1969, all these men trying to get on the moon when we don't even know the depths of our own ocean. Did she ever feel rage like Auntie C, who threw acid on her husband? Who could make holy water out of a man's tears? The question at hand, why leave? Why leave? Like sand, she might grab his ankles to make him stay. Portrait of spinal fusion, a string in between two tin cans. Twine, the emptiness between us, is 162 years long. We bond over what we are missing, how it is inexorably located in our fierce and tiny bodies. I got my back fixed on Juneteenth, but my knees still ache during thunderstorms, so I think Maria is the reason. My back is still a little crooked, meaning I carry her in me and vice versa. I write the poem while Maria is sold in South Carolina. Maria gives birth to Betty. Maria survives her own reconstruction. We speak in our own Morse code, strategic nerve absences in my back, moving backwards in time. I got my back fixed on Juneteenth. I had to relearn to walk and say it didn't hurt, as much as watching a 12-year-old fade into silence. Maria understands all of it emptiness, how it is inexorably located in our fierce and tiny bodies, a twine 162 years long. This is titled, um, Residing in a Pocket of Ancestral Joy in Three Parts. One offering poem. Dear Maria, I am writing to you because I wish you could feel the love in my life. I am writing because I know you do how it beats like a dragon heart and keeps a whole city warm, radiating through time and space. We love fiercely, with consistent effort. So fierce, it's mathematical. We love fierceness into physical phenomena. Our love is the lightning and the petrichor. I am writing to you because I owe you. The tags on my face, my shoes, my shirt, my hair, my freedom, every word I write, and everything I have ever done, and if I ever do anything worth note, it is dedicated to you. Maria Holt. I heard somewhere that when we heal from trauma, our ancestors do too. Hoping the bloodline that connects me and you and my mom and her mom and my dad and his mom and her mom and everybody else turns to Ikor. Hoping we can come out of this together and bench press a thousand. Two conversations. Maria describes soil in between her toes for the first time, motions with her hands to show me how small her feet were. Maria tells me how tired she was the last time she felt the earth between her toes, how there wasn't a canyon big enough for her ribcage. During one of our talks, Maria might say, 
Nobody knows diaspora better than us, huh? Or she might shape words with her mouth, but no voice comes out. Some nights before moonrise, we pack our inner tubes and sneak out to the calmest part of the Atlantic, right in the middle. Maria was never afraid of sharks. She says, we could just float out here forever, you know. When the water is especially still, Maria sings to me. While she sings, she also might cry, hating the taste of iron and salt. After a while, she'd say, let's go back home. So we would choose a direction, start swimming. Three, love through time. Anecdote for you. When I was 11, my best friend and her mom would say, I give you this blank when they saw a beautiful sunset, tree, rock, etc. It was their way of expressing their unconditional love for each other. Dear Maria, I give you the sunset and the tenacity of my mint plant. I give you ancestral questions and kinky coils, motherhood and the unity of our bodies. I give you dreams. I give you the color black and a blessing for your home. I give you a general busyness to your life and a fascination for it. I give you ease and the death of your pain. I give you death. Then I give you forgiveness. I give you imagination and the benevolence of the bees in spring. I give you my smile back when I had no teeth. I give you irony and time travel. I give you the vulnerability of new bloom. I give you time. I give you this and all my writing. I give you rest and the rest. I give you a post office so you can write me. I give you family and wellness. I give you conversation. I give you youth, light and lightness, pettiness and a tendency to hold on. I give you feeling. I give you so much feeling. I give you play. I give you neediness. I give you angels watching over you the whole time. Now back to the beginning, I give you the beginning. I give you movement. I let you move on. Friendship poem. Dear, what do you think about daffodils? What do you think about plants that close their leaves when you touch them? Do you think about them or are you too grumpy? The way you wear your mismatched socks makes me think that you think about daffodils sometimes. Sometimes God and prayer and how to be an ethical lover, you spiritual mastermind, you. Dear, dear, I owe you my life, or at least this caramel crepe I burnt myself trying to make. Dear, I love you not for the shape of your hands, although they are small and perfect for all the English reins you desire to possess. I love you for your giggle and your lungs, arms full of beating heart to jump into from way up here instead of the cement. Remember the time we drove to Oakland and you were fascinated by the Bay Bridge? The fact that bridges can take you over and around less desirable routes, i.e. a bay full of water, Dear, I admire your glee and stomach and fascination and how you fall in love with everything and your heart breaks and everything and your heart breaks. Dear, I imagine you and Dolores and all of her other sad cousins laughing somewhere as your curly hair intertwines into one. You deserve the whole world, straight out of a coloring book, to throw you a picnic in mid-June with cotton candy grapes. We will ask you what you want hoping you'll say everything. We will write diss poems to anyone who's ever spited you and a brand new collection of socks. We'll stick the picnic in a letter and mail it to you wherever you are. Poem about loving myself. 
Me and the hairs on my chin take off our boxing gloves and cook together. While chopping rosemary, we laugh about the time I gave myself a chemical burn. Tomato sauce makes the war seem petty now. We invite over my knuckles, and our laughter crackles over fire. My eyes bring my eyelashes because they've been together for years, and the five of us talk about films. Talk about the scaly mountains of my spine and my lopsided breasts. The stretch marks on my thighs flash lightning above us, but we add it to the slow-cooked soup anyway. Us, a commune. Communion, a midsummer breaking of bread among old friends getting older, joints soon to calcify. We look to my quads, each linear scar, a story we all witnessed to and survived. How my hands used to grab for safety pins until they ran stripes and scabs across my legs. So, after the recession of hatred, all of us soldiers jump out and embrace over no man's land. We all cry tears of sweat. Mourn the baby teeth, wherever they might be. Welcome the metal in my spine and the rainy ache in my knees. All the while, my legs carry me. They carry on and on. When the soup is ready, there is a seat at the table for my curl pattern and the dirt on my scalp that gets trapped under my fingernails. There is a seat at the table for my blurry vision and the way my nose runs when it's below 60. We clear the highway for the mole on my index finger. The table goes on and on. I get antsy as I keep an eye out for tomorrow me. I want to hold her hand as we say a blessing at the table. I want to hold her. And my lungs say, yes, me too. This is Upshot. Even though my left ear is clogged as shit, I can still hear baby birds coo from my right. I guess the upshot is that even in the bay, it doesn't rain forever. That milk is the antidote to powdery mildew draining life force from my plants. Poor Rosemary. Every day something has tried to kill her and failed. The upshot is that having all these plants makes me forget about my social anxiety and white dudes who can't keep their dicks to themselves. The upshot is that jewel tones exist and I'm dark enough to pull them off. The upshot is that pain is not forever. Nikki Giovanni was like, when I die, I hope nobody hurts me cries. And I'm like, nah, bitch, I want you sobbing because I'm petty. The upshot is that I will die and fungus will eat me till my calcium carbonate bones become the black gold that gets stuck under your fingernails or in the pale shoot of a sunflower seedling, which is to say, nobody can hold me down for long, can't tell me nothing. I literally had my spine broken in half and put back together. So now when literal shit hits the fan, I say, what's next? I'm like the tribe. I keep it moving. The upshot is that when I spend all day standing and my feet are sore and I'm still like sweating the bills, the upshot is that I can honestly whisper, I love you, I love you, I love you for trying till I fall asleep in front of the moonshine. And because I'm blessed, the blue moon beams so strong, the clouds watch me to fall asleep. And with the rise and fall of my diaphragm, I am the biggest spoon that ever existed. Everything you throw at me, I will reflect right back upside down and brighter. Crawl into me if you dare. Hi, Lena. Hello. Thank you so much for being on Off the Page and sharing your work with us. Thank you for having me. Um, I'd just like to start by asking how you found your way to poetry. How I found my way to poetry? Um, That's a great question. I've been writing for nearly, like, as long as I've been alive. I would write with my my parents when I was younger, and when I was in middle school, I would um, write more fiction. 
And I think I, I'd encountered poetry in classrooms. And I think I started seriously writing in high school. I feel like for a lot of young poets, Tumblr and the internet and slam poetry are very accessible. And I think those were two communities doing slam in high school um, and like local slam as well as being online and like encountering so many other online Tumblr poets was like a very, um, I don't know, cool way to get started. And I've kind of been writing more seriously since high school. So starting with the first poem you read, uh, Quantum Distributions for Sarah Bartman, um, could you maybe just talk a little bit about the story of, of Sarah Bartman, just for people who don't know, and, and you know, what inspired uh, this poem? Yeah, so Sarah Bartman was a woman from South Africa, I believe, at the time, uh, who was captured um, and was displayed in a cage, uh, and she was she she gained gained the name the, the Hottentot Venus, um, and and people thought it was worth exposing her and putting her in a cage and treating her like non-human because of her body, because of her black female body, and I mean that's kind of the story of like the Hottentot Venus as like this gross enactment of racism in the 1800s and its connections with power in the World Fair. So, so I had known the story of this woman before, but I d- had not known anything about the phys- concept, physics concepts that you mm-hmm. also invoke in this poem. And I did, maybe this is Physics 101, I did not know that there was a concept in physics of the black body. I had just heard that term in its other context. So when did, I guess, like, physics and, and the story of Sarah Bartman kind of become aligned? I think, like, as, like, like a, a black female scientist, like, I am carrying these things, like, constantly. And so I think, like, in my education, like, similarly kind of, like, encountering the phrase, like, black body radiator as, like, the scientific concept, I think sometimes language, I mean, the beautiful thing about language is that it, like, surprises us and makes us feel things. But I think encountering the phrase black body outside of the context in which I am, like, constantly thinking about blackness embodied or bodies of blackness, like, in terms of, like, this objectified, lifeless sense, I think that was kind of this first moment where I was like, oh, there's something interesting about this. And I think, like, holding space in the places that I do, I want to write about it. And so that was kind of where I went with the poem. Well, and I also, and I hope this isn't like an over-read or something, but I think when I read the poem, I also wondered if there was like a critique of, um, not a critique of, but sort of interrogation of like science in the sense that a lot of this, like this violence that was done to Sarah Bartman was done in the name of, you know, research, you know, and there's a long history of that for people of color and queer people and women like, oh, we're just doing some scientific investigations and and torturing you in the, pro-, you know, but totally. science is seen as like empirical and value or, you know, but it's not. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I think that is totally what I was trying to get at at this poem. And I think it's a conversation that we as scientists, we like as a society, I think like need to have um I think often we like to pretend that science is ahistorical um, or a contextual or, or that 
it exists as an objective truth. But exactly as you said, a lot of Western science that we have developed has been at the cost of so many lives and often the lives of people of color. And um, yeah, I, I definitely wanted to kind of like highlight that because how can you really call it an objective truth when there is so much violence um, happening at the cost of it? Yeah. Um, I wanted to also ask about the the last line of your poem, Holy Matriarchy Landslides into Forgotten. And I was wondering what that line meant for you and, and if you see this poem and some of your other poems as acts of commemoration or preservation? I mean, for a lot of the poems in, in that I've like collected and like read today, um, and especially the poems that invoke a lot of kind of like black women in my family and this idea of ancestry are in this act of remembrance. And I think especially um, with the poems that talk about Maria, but also even in Holy, like the idea of like my great-grandmother, like these are women who are no longer here and it feels very powerful to kind of like bring them into this moment through a poem and I think especially I mean I'm coming back to Maria like in this answer but also like it's something that happens like on the page going back my family like we've been like tracking our ancestry and like looking through records and things like that um and going back over like the past maybe like five to seven years and finding more details that have led us to her name and just knowing her name um is so powerful because this is a woman who was born in 1832 and was born a slave and we didn't know anything about her until a couple of years ago and I think that kind of these women who who were forgotten kind of like coming back again invoking that feels very powerful to me yeah I was also going to ask about um, Maria Holt who you write I think for these poems uh, there's uh, the the suite of poems and also portrait of spinal fusion as a string in between two tin cans so Maria mm-hmm. Holt how did you how did you discover her and and how has she um, influenced your work so in terms of discovering Maria my dad was really at the forefront of doing a lot of this kind of research around our ancestry and so for a long time, the only person we knew, like the furthest back in our family history, was Betty, who I mentioned in that poem. But then when her death certificate was released in 2015, we found out that Maria, Maria Holt, was her mom. And it was really powerful because, like, this is ancestral research that we're doing about these black women who were living in the 19th century. Maria was literally born a slave. So in terms of, like, records, like, it could be that the, the records, like, end at Maria and that's that's all we have, but it's it's definitely a difficult process in terms of things that we we know and, and information that is like readily available. There's a lot of sifting through that we've had to done. So that's kind of how I was introduced to Maria, but again, because there's so little information that I know about her besides her name and when she was born and who her daughter was, I mean, I also know where she lived. These are just total, like, bare bones kind of starting points. Um, I mean, it's just very, very bare bones compared to other types of like archival research where maybe you have letters or um, artifacts or or things like that. So it definitely created a lot of space for for the poems in the suite for me to be imaginative in a way that feels authentic and respectful in terms of the process and um, 
sufficient. Yeah, and I love, I love in these poems about Maria that, you know, there's that line about, I heard somewhere that when we heal our, from our trauma, our ancestors do too. I just, this is not even a question. It's just, I love the way that, that um, you're in conversation with her memory and in that poem and also in the, the third poem in the suite, the Love Through Time poem, where the repetition of give, uh, to me it also sort of sounds like a, a kind of thanks, right? Mm-hmm. That like these things that you are giving to her are also things that she has given to you, you know? Exactly. Um, and there's just like a beautiful sort of mutuality there. Um I wanted to ask you about joy. Uh, I feel like a lot of these poems contain a great sense of joy and and positivity and strength while dealing with very difficult, violent, traumatic subject matter. I'm thinking particularly of the last two poems you read, um, poem about loving myself and Upshot. And I guess I'm just curious, like in, in composing work, sort of how do you access that? Like how do, how do you manage to write about difficult or traumatic subject matter in a way that feels, not uplifting is a cheesy word, but that feels <laughs> sort of indomitable and, mm. you know, defiant, I guess, mm. maybe. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think part of that is being in conversation with a lot of poets who have managed to do it before. But I think it's like comforting knowing that I am in community with people who have overcome, um, who have survived. And I think that's also kind of what a lot of this like invocation work in like these poems is getting at. But I think for a poem about loving myself and upshot, it's really hard to write about something before you're ready, or at least that's how I feel. Um, and then simultaneously, I think for me, the act of writing is very urgent. And so in terms of like writing a poem, Upshot, which is like, I feel like, you know, poems are sometimes, or just like works in progress. And so Upshot, I finished like a couple of, maybe like a week ago, but it definitely felt like a process where it was like, it feels very urgent for me to say that like, I am still here. I have like survived. Like I am indestructible, um, for lack of a better word. And I think it feels urgent to say that as like this act of like personal like survival, but I think also it feels urgent to say in terms of like, I don't know if this makes sense, um, and it's kind of like a loop around analogy, but when I was writing the suite of poems to Maria, it kind of felt almost like me like writing like at like a Ouija board and like trying to like communicate with someone and I'm like waiting for them to like answer back. Um, and it was like very powerful in that way. And I think poetry at large, like being in co- conversation with so many other poets, like this writing feels like urgent as this act of survival, but also like we are all kind of writing out towards each other. And I also feel some kind of urgency to kind of like reply and say, yes, I'm still here. What about you? Yeah, I think that's kind of like the process for me, especially in those two poems. Yeah, I think you can really feel that urgency and that sense of the moment. And I think that, that that's something that I feel in all your work, that the sense that there is this really urgent need to write the poem and that there's a specific audience or, or listener intended. And I feel like that that gives the work a lot of power. I think the last thing I'll ask you about is just how you see writing sort of in, you know, in your future years. You're... you're, you're um, graduating, you're a scientist, you're um, getting your master's in 
Applied physics. Applied physics. And I'm just curious how you see poetry sort of factoring in to your future. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm at a point where I know that I'll be writing till like the day I die. Um, so I won't stop writing. Uh, I think it's been interesting in the past four years going through and pursuing science and also writing and, and honing my craft. I think I've been tempted to feel very isolated for having like these very disparate interests. But I think in the future, I see them coming forward a lot more in terms of like whatever career and lifestyle I can kind of craft for myself. I'm doing a lot of education work right now or education research. Um, and I think in terms of things that feel urgent as like the word of the day, all these things kind of feel urgent and will come together. As like a writer goal, I would love to um, kind of expand a lot of this work into a manuscript in the future. No timeline on that, but we'll see. Well, you know, I would actually even say uh, that the the suite that you've shared with us today feels a little bit like a, a chapbook to me because mm-hmm. there is such a, I felt like when I read these poems, there was such a clear portrait created and I started to, there were recurring like, oh, she has a lot of plants and, you <laughs> yeah. know, Maria, you know, and there mm-hmm. was there was this sort of unity to it. So can't wait to see more of your work out there in the future. Thank you, Lena, so much for being with us. Thank you. This episode was produced by Alessandra Wallner, Maddie Curtis, and our talented team of producers, editors, and coaches. Aaron Wu, Sienna White, Aparna Verma, Yui Lee, Claudia Haymack, Christopher Laboa, Victoria Wan, and Jet Hayward. Thanks to Leland Quarterly for their editorial help, especially Zui Zhao. Thanks to Jonah Willingans for his supervision, and to Ivan Bolin, Christina Ablatza, and Ose Jackson at the Creative Writing Program. For their generous support to the Stanford Storytelling Project, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, Stanford Arts, and Bruce Braden. <laughs>